The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. Good morning. Scripture this morning is from Exodus 2. Verse 11 through 15, and then we'll be at uh, chapter 3 as well. Uh, you can find it in the Bible underneath the chairs, or you can follow along on the screen behind me. Exodus 2, 11 through 15. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and a judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, verses three, uh, chapter three, verse one. Now Moses was kept was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, "I will turn aside to see this great sight, why this bush is not burned." When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. This is the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, when Randy asked me to speak today, we had an interesting exchange. I asked him what the text was, and he said it was open, that we were in the transition between two books, the book of Luke and the book of Acts, and that the previous three weeks were going to be on discipleship, and maybe I could give it a practical twist. Well, shazam! This is like handing a torque wrench to a knuckle-dragging ninja gearhead. And as I thought about today... I decided I wanted to talk about doxa. My first title was Failure's Not an Option, but that wasn't quite right. Any human endeavor might fail, but it isn't something we actively choose. And then along the way, I got some advice. My buddy Matt told me, don't mess it up. And my beloved said, don't get cute. <laughs> The more I thought about doxa, the more it became clear that doxa is the exception to the normal church. And I thought about why. What makes doxa different? And I realized doxa operates at the tip of the spear. What's that mean? This brings us to the core values and the core DNA that is doxa. 
Since I'm a storyteller, I brought some visual aids with me today. But even if the digital media doesn't work, I got an old school prop that I brought along. Now, this is a, and I already see cringes out there. This is a quarter staff bow. It's a martial arts weapon, largely ceremonial today. And when I hand it to an underbelt to teach them how to do it, they get a death grip on the center because they don't want to do something stupid and they forget everything they've learned in the last six, nine, or 12 months. Now, we teach them the down strike, up, down, left, right, helicopter, hook, thrust. And, <clears throat> and they don't want to drop it. They don't want to drop this ball. We've given this, this to them. Newsflash. Nothing happens at the center of the bow. You never hit anything or anybody with the middle of the stick. Underbelts don't realize that until much later that the focus of the weapon is at the tips. Every strike involves the tip, not the center, because maximum power and maximum effect take place at the tip of the spear. The bow handler never touches the tips. His hands slide up and down, around, doing all sorts of things, holding on to the bow, directing the action. This bow is about five and a half feet long, and the real action takes place here. Most of the wood is not where the action takes place. The hard work is done at the tip of the spear. Okay, I know you're asking. What does this possibly have to do with a sermon? It's a nice stick. But there are plenty of nice sticks out there. Well, I'm glad you asked that question. Because I'm going to tell you about a little church at the end of Augusta Plantation Drive that meets every Sunday in the River Oaks Elementary School called Doxa. The bow is an analog, and I think it's a pretty good one as we explore Doxa's DNA. Doxa is not stuck in the middle. Doxa is not the typical American church. Doxa is moving towards the tip of the spear, where the action takes place. And if you truly understand doxa and doxa's DNA, then you understand that doxa is at the tip of the spear. Doxa has two primary visions. The first is to reach the Grand Strand with a series of church plants and community groups. The second is to reach the students at Coastal Carolina University. I can tell you with absolute certainty that God took those visions seriously. Things are happening 
on both avenues of the vision. And we as a church are going to be challenged in the coming months in addressing those visions. God wants to know if we're serious. Really, are we serious about reaching the Grand Strand? Are we serious about reaching Coastal Carolina? Are we ready to do the hard work? Are we ready to move to the tip of the spear? So what does the tip of the spear look like? We're going to have four stories today. First, we're going to look at Moses, our text, and then a missionary couple from Papua New Guinea, and then two doxa-based examples. Every example, I want you to think about the tip of the spear, where the action takes place. So we come to Moses. We can divide Moses' life into three phases. First phase, obliviousness. Second phase, preparation. And the third phase, action. We think of Moses, we think of the story of Moses, and we think of two things, really. We think of the baby floating down the river or the locket. Now, Moses starts out as a baby in a basket of reeds and tar, floating on the Nile River, and he's a Hebrew baby found by an Egyptian princess and saved from the death at the hands of the midwives. You see, the midwives have been ordered by the Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the entire land, to slaughter the Hebrew newborns because the Egyptians were afraid of being overrun by the Hebrews. But the midwives disobeyed Pharaoh. Now, Pharaoh is this king. He could kill you on the spot. He could do anything he wanted to. You knew who Pharaoh was. You could see him. You could see his parade. You could see his majesty. But the midwives were more afraid, respectively afraid, of Jehovah God, who they could not see. And so they weren't worried as much about the capricious whims of a human ruler as they were about the almighty God, their God, Jehovah God. And Moses grew up a prince of Egypt, generally unaware of anything happening to God's people. It's a pretty good gig if you can get it. You know, Prince of Egypt, in the palace, plenty of food, nice clothes, your own chariot, good times. <laughs> By this point in time, the Hebrews, once welcomed into Egypt, are now slaves. Life is good for Moses, but it's not so good for the Israelites. He's living his life, and everything is great. He is oblivious. He is naive. He is privileged. He is irresponsible. Until one day. Now, we read in the text 
that Randy read for us. Now, it came about in those days when Moses had grown up that he went out to his brethren and looked on their hard labors. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. So he looked this way and that. And when he saw that no one was around, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. Or let's be more precise. He murdered an Egyptian. And he went out the next day, and behold, two Hebrews were fighting with each other. And he said to the offender, why are you striking your companion? Because in his mind, they're two Hebrews. They should be on the same side, right? But he said, who made you prince or judge over us? Are you intending to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Whoopsie. He didn't murder the Egyptian as secretly as he thought he had. And then Moses was afraid because he'd been found out. And he said, surely this matter has become known. And when Pharaoh heard of this matter, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from the presence of Pharaoh and settled in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now, at this point, Moses is 40 years old, and he just had a divine appointment. There's no coincidence here. There's no coincidence that he went out to see the Hebrews. There's no coincidence that he committed murder. There's no coincidence that he fled from Egypt. He was driven into the desert by God. It was not an accident. It was a divine appointment. He, Moses, has transitioned from obliviousness to now a 40-year period of preparation. At the age of 40, and for the next 40 years, he works as a shepherd, safe from Pharaoh, but a long way from the prince of Egypt's status. I don't think he had his own chariot at this point. And why sheep? They're obstinate, stubborn, stiff-necked, nearsighted critters. Sound like anybody you know? They need constant supervision. What better training ground for the final phase of his life? Now, by the time he's done tending sheep, Moses is 80 years old. This is not a very good retirement plan. He has spent 40 years as a prince of Egypt, 40 years as a shepherd, and 40 years as a man of action leading the children of Israel. And we read, and the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the midst of a bush. And he looked and behold, the bush was burning with fire, yet the bush was not consumed. Now, that's, that's kind of a calling card. You know, if you see a bush burning and it's not consumed by the fire, you might want to pay attention. So Moses said, I must turn aside now and see this marvelous sight, why the bush is not burned up. And when the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him from the midst of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. 
And he said, here I am. And then he said, do not come near. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. He also said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Now, even if you disagree that being driven into the desert was a divine appointment, you cannot dispute the fact that this is a divine appointment. God is talking directly to Moses. And why did this take place? Well, Moses was out there with the sheep. Exodus 2.23 tells us that during that long period, okay, 40 years, long period, with sheep, long, really long, the king of Egypt died. The pharaoh that had chased Moses away had died. And the Israelites groaned in their slavery and cried out. And their cry for help because of the slavery went up to God. And God heard their groaning. And he remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and Jacob. So God looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. God had a plan. God had Moses. Moses was tending sheep. Moses was being prepared because God now, with the burning bush, takes this 80-year-old shepherd and says, okay, now it's time for you to go to action. And what an action it is. Now think about this scene, folks. you got Moses and Aaron, two 80-year-old guys, maybe the original grumpy old man. But two 80-year-old guys, and they walk in to the majesty, the throne room of Pharaoh. And what's their message? Let my people go. I don't think this was quite what Moses had in mind. We know that God was with them. We know the rest of the story. We know that God unleashed ten plagues, culminating in the death of the firstborn. And from this, Passover was instituted. And God miraculously protected the children of Israel as the angel of death passed over them. And Moses led his people to the Red Sea, pursued by Pharaoh's army, and God miraculously parted the Red Sea. And Moses led his people across on dry land, and Pharaoh's army was destroyed when those waters crushed them, and he brought the Ten Commandments down from the mount, and he established laws and ordinances. He led them to the borders of the Promised Land. Small, nimble, the only thing Pharaoh saw when two 80-year-old guys walked into his throne room and said, let my people go, were two 80-year-old guys, and I'm pretty sure Pharaoh said, are you guys for real? Yeah? You really want me to let all these people go? He said that until he began to feel the effects of the man, the God, controlling the spear directing the spear, because Moses was at the tip. The tip of the spear is not some big bureaucracy. The tip of the spear is small. It's nimble. It's a few people. And God used 
that tip to create one of the greatest stories ever told in the Bible. It was a one-way trip. Just like the trip from being prince of Egypt to being a shepherd was a one-way trip. We primarily remember Moses, not because he was a prince of Egypt or a shepherd. We remember him because at the age of 80, God called him and sent him into action to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt. The crossing of the Red Sea is one of the pivotal events in Scripture. It's not an accident. It's not a coincidence. What we are seeing here in the story of Moses, this is God crafting history. No coincidences, no accidents here. So now we want to turn, and maybe slides will show up, and maybe they won't. And I'm going to start to talk about Greg and Mary Pearson. Over 30 years ago, they decided to sign up with Wycliffe. And eventually, they arrived in Papua New Guinea. That's on the other side of the world between Australia and Indonesia. And the only people I know who have ever been there are Ronnie and Yiping. And they went to bring the gospel. Ah, there they are. There they are, 1983. That's their village house. They went to bring the gospel to the Lote people group at the invitation of one of the Lote elders. And when they arrived, after they had signed up, after they'd had some preparation, Lote people group had no written language. Now you're a Wycliffe missionary. Think about this scene. You're a Wycliffe missionary. There's no written language. And you're supposed to translate the New Testament into Lote. There's a little disconnect there. They had to create all of that. They had to teach people how to read and write. They had to create the grammar, the syntax, the language in written form. It took more than 30 years to produce the New Testament. They spent four years in the field. That's, that's Mary teaching people how to read. They spent four years in the field and one year back on furlough. Could you do that? I couldn't. They had a village house with one of the most spectacular views imaginable. It was a multi-million dollar view. And they had a place at the base camp called in Yukarampa. Ronnie tells me they call that place Little America. They raised a family there. They lived their life there. They did the hard work. My participation in this work was so minimal, all I did was send money. That's all I did. I didn't go over there. I didn't do anything. I sent money. My kids donated a Nintendo machine. And as I understand, it still works at the base camp in Yukarumpa. Greg and Mary have been on the tip of the spear their entire adult lives. 
They went through the same three phases as Moses did. There was a, you know, growing up, they wanted me to point out this, this little computer here, this Bondwell. I don't think anybody's ever seen an eight-line computer, 60 characters across, black and white screen. That's what they went to the field with. That was their computer. Less computing powder, power than what we took to the Apollo uh, moon landing, which is really hard to do in this day and age. They went through the same three phases as Moses. There was a period of obliviousness. There was a period of preparation where they went down to Texas for 18 to 24 months, had language then. And then they arrived in Papua New Guinea. I'm sure when they arrived there and they saw that there's no written language, that the enormity of their task had to just swallow them up. How are you going to accomplish this thing that God has laid on your heart? But you know what? Failure wasn't an option. And they changed the world. Two people at the behest of an almighty God brought the written word the written gospel to a people that had no written language 40 years ago. Think about that. And the ripple effect of that work will last for generations. Two people, small number, create an echo in history that will be heard forever. And just a point to ourselves. The printing press was invented in 1440. The King James Version of the Bible was finished in 1611. Where would we be if that hadn't happened? If all we had were handwritten Latin transcripts on vellum to read? Books were rare. We take the written word for granted, but it was not always so. And we reap the benefits of early translations and printing presses to generations that followed. Just like the Lote people with their gospel will reap for generations to follow there. That's what the tip of the spear looked like. Looks like still, they're still over there helping other Wycliffe missionaries at Ukarumpa. So now I want to go to another story about Chinese outreach. There are some fascinating things happening here at Doxa. For example, did you know that there is a substantial Chinese population living here in Myrtle Beach? I didn't. I knew there were some foreign students at Coastal Carolina. By our estimate, it's about 500 of them. But I didn't know anything about a permanent population. They were invisible to me. And based on the response to a single community group that we're running up close to coastal, there's a gaping hunger for the gospel. 
did you ever think about what happens to these foreign students on a holiday like Thanksgiving? You know, you got 10,500 students at Coastal. 10,000 of them go home. 500 of them sit there. What happens to them? Nothing happens. I want to tell you a little story before I get further into Ronnie and Eping's story. My youngest daughter and son-in-law had a ministry to the Chinese students at the U of M campus in Minneapolis. And they invited eight to 10 students to Thanksgiving at their house when they lived there. We came to, and it was one of the best Thanksgivings I've ever had. They got to minister to these students, to these Chinese students that had no place to go because the plane ride home was 5,000 bucks, and it would take longer to fly back and forth than it was to have the three, four days that were off. But there was a cultural sledgehammer that hit because I had two little grandsons running around loose, and all of these Kids from China were single children, only children, due to the one-child policy. They had no concept of siblings. So it's not only a cultural gulf between us, there's a spiritual gulf between us. And those kids need to know about the saving grace of Jesus Christ, just like everyone else. And it's one of our goals to reach the kids at Coastal Carolina. And that same hunger exists in the Chinese population here in Myrtle Beach. There are families, perhaps with both parents are Chinese speakers, or one is an American and the other is a Chinese, and language and culture are barriers. Now, the previous story I gave you was set in Papua New Guinea, and we have a huge God who sees a need, Chinese population here in Myrtle Beach. And he matches someone to meet that need. The circumstances that brought Ronnie and Yi Ping from Papua New Guinea to Taiwan to northern China, the city of Harbin, and all the way to the Atlantic coast is not an accident. It is... God moving people around, shaping history. They spent 10 years in northern China, in the city of Harbin. Harbin's about 5 million people. Roughly, it's on the same latitude as the southern border of Siberia. And having supported somebody in that region, I know it gets cold. It does get cold, right? There's nothing warm about those places. And in addition... This was in mainland China. Mainland China is hostile to the gospel because the Chinese cult of personality and the Chinese government cannot afford to have anything but the government be God to people there. And they were there for 10 years as missionaries for almighty Jehovah God. And they worked with YWAM there And what has happened? Through circumstance and opportunity, they've reached out to touch the hidden Chinese population here 
None of the rest of us have the language and cultural skills to penetrate that population. But Ronnie and Yi Ping do. This outreach began organically, without a budget, or a plan, or a committee, or a program, or any of the other myriad of things we're told must take place for ministry to take, to happen, to occur. There's been some confusion, there were some setbacks, there were some pushbacks. They now proceed to, to minister to these people and talk to these people under the auspices of DOXA. Let me be perfectly clear. This is no coincidence. This is the real and palpable movement of the Holy Spirit in our midst. The tip of the spear is small and nimble. It reaches maximum impact with minuscule, with a very minuscule portion. Yet behind that tip is a mighty force directing the effort. What is the effect of reaching this invisible population? We have no idea. We can't see into the future what will happen. But we know that we have an awesome God, and he has a plan. So next, I want to talk about street reach. Some of you have been involved in street. When I first heard about Street Reach, I was at C Group last December, and we were stuffing doxa bags with socks and toiletries, gloves and other things, and plans were made to serve a lasagna dinner on Christmas Eve. People from this little church, remember that little church, the one I told you we were going to talk about, the one called Doxa? People from this little church spent their Christmas Eve serving dinner and passing out bags the homeless people, the forgotten, the shunned amongst us. There was another Christmas Eve when a heavenly host appeared to shepherds tending their flocks and proclaimed the good news that Jesus Christ is born. So I look at this and I have to ask, what's happening? So I track down Chet, the ringleader of this unlikely group of angels. So Christmas Eve was the outcome of something else. How did it start? Now before I give you the answer, you need to understand that Chet is a Marine, and Marines don't plan. <laughs> they improvise, they adapt, and overcome. I've been around enough Marines to attest to this mindset. And I asked Chet, how'd this start? And he tells me that it began in a previous church Bible study. They decided to put all the study into action. Action, third phase. Prep obliviousness, preparation, action, action. The knowledge that street reach existed began. But how did it happen at Doxa? Well... Chet grabbed Philip and Tyson last fall. And they had to put a couple of bags together, and they drove around 
got out of their car, went into the woods, favored by the homeless people, and started passing out goodie bags. Improvise, adapt, overcome. Now, they had a Marine with them, and I would suggest you bring your own Marine or, you know, make an appointment with Chet. If all we do is have Bible study and listen to sermons and never venture beyond that, what good are we? The God of the Bible is a God of action. Are we a people of action? So again, there's no planning committee here, no budget, no prepackaged program that you can buy on Amazon or other places. Just a heartfelt desire to reach out to people shunned by our society. Now granted, Christmas Eve was more of an organized effort. But it was Christmas Eve. What were you doing on Christmas Eve? I know Chet was doing a lasagna dinner. In March, we had an enchilada dinner. And there were more people and more organization. Do you see what's happened here? Three guys and a couple of goodie bags ventured out into the woods to find people to minister to. And now we have an ongoing ministry and relationship with Street Reach. That's the tip of the spear. That is the essence of doxa. Tip of the spear, small and nimble. Well, maybe moderate size when we look at Chet, because he's a big guy. So do you have the picture? Chet, Philip, and Tyson stumbling around in the woods for homeless people and giving them goodie bags when they find them. This is not, and I want to make sure we fully understand this, this is not a gospel of social justice. This is a gospel of sharing Jesus and salvation. But let's be real, folks. People will listen a little bit better if you take care of their basic human needs. Students, homeless people, isolated, invisible, all need to hear the good news. Don't get me wrong, don't misunderstand. Prayer and salvation are the building blocks of the kingdom. Conclusions. Today, we looked at four stories. Moses and Aaron in Pharaoh's court. Greg and Mary with the Lote people, Ronnie and Yiping, and the Chinese population, Chep, Chet, Philip, and Tyson meeting the homeless. These efforts begin with small, determined groups of people called by God to do something, action. And remember who wields the spear. We are about to enter into a year-long study in the book of Acts, or the Acts of the Apostles, a book of action. The New 
Testament church didn't happen by accident. Things were done. History was written. God directed an effort. What is the tip of the spear? It's the point of action. I want to leave with two more vignettes. First is about a guy named Bill Hamill. Now, to me, he'll always be Pastor Bill, even though he went on to be a district superintendent and president of the Evangelical Free Church. And anyway, churches back then, well, late 70s, early 80s, would rent out a camp and have a weekend retreat. West Bloomington Free Church went to Camp Shamanah in the middle of Minnesota on Lake Shamanah. You know, there's a little connection there. But Pastor Bill refused to call it a retreat. He called it the fall advance. He believed the gospel should advance, not retreat. Advance or retreat. One simple word. But it has a tremendous difference in perspective. Your perspective changes when you move from the middle of the spear to the tips. Okay. And then we're going to talk about a little race car. And race car, Pinewood Derby. I need the picture. There we go. Okay. <laughs> or take this Pinewood Derby car. Some would call it my first Whittleways car. Doesn't look like much. It's small. Paint job's pretty rotten. There are no shiny rims on the wheels. But uh, one night, some 50 years ago, this shabby excuse for a racer beat every other Pinewood Derby car for the entire Cub Scout troop in Bloomington, Minnesota. You see, you don't have to be flashy to be effective. The tip of the spear is not flashy. But it's where the work gets done. The tip of the spear is the first in and the last out. It is potent and small. It's where the action takes place. It always advances. It is the point of focus for maximum impact. It is the business end. It is doxa. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for today. Thank you for the opportunity to share this message. Thank you for everyone who's here and everyone who listened to this message. In your name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. 
For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.